Welcome back to The Sinner, a podcast about understanding the present by putting it into some historical context. This is on Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. The word education is derived from the Latin word educato, a breeding, a bringing up, a rearing. But what is education? Who gives the education? Who receives this education? What is the difference between education and learning? What is training? When and how did education start? Was it always there? Or did someone invent it? How does your and my worldview shape because of education? And is it education a good thing? Does education create a us and a them? Does it shape our thinking? Are we left conditioned and brainwashed? What about that extensive education industry? You know, the one that makes a lot of money educating. So let's look deeper into what exactly organized instructional knowledge absorption is. Well, education is the process of promoting knowledge or the acquiring of information, skills, values, morals, beliefs, and practices. Instructional approaches involve teaching, training, storytelling, discussion, and focus investigation. Education usually takes place under the direction of teachers. However, pupils can also educate themselves or receive education from parents, guardians, or religious clergy. Education can take place in a formal or informal environment, and any experience that has a developmental effect on the way one thinks, feels, or acts may be thought of as educational. So what is education? To me, it is organized instructional knowledge absorption of new information by a student from a teacher in a formally sanctioned ecosystem. So what then is learning? Human learning commences before birth and remains unto death as a result of constant interactions between people and their environment. Interestingly, the capacity to learn is retained by many earthly life forms and some machines. There is also evidence for some kind of learning in certain plants. In short, you don't need to be formally instructed to learn. It happens in life. So what about training? Training has explicit purposes like developing an individual's ability, potential, productivity, and performance. It forms a basis for apprenticeships. Training requires a formal system but is different from education since it is vocational, on the job, and has a very clear outcome without the requirement of meeting academic or institutional principles. So how did all of this start? I don't want to confuse education, learning, and training. Plus, I think it's important to keep them all separate. Literate versus non-literate societies have traditionally been used as the barometer in understanding education levels in history or society. However, learning and training have been around much longer than education. Elite scholars should be wary of dismissing non-literate cultures and societies. Literacy 
isn't an indicator of learning or training evolution, but the ability to read and write. Hunter-gatherer societies in prehistoric times would have had to use both training and learning to pass knowledge from generation to generation. Not doing so could mean no food, no shelter, and no protection. Those humans who learned to tell the stories about poisonous berries versus sweet ones and how to hunt or how to protect and fight survived. Those who did not learn the lessons or forgot did not have a chance to evolve. Early settlers were learners. They were in constant training, but they were not literate and they were not educated. Many in today's society are also under constant training and constant learning, but they may not be literate or formally educated. Diving deeper into literacy, let's look at early writing. We know from archaeological finds that humans drew on cave walls. We also know from finds that humans made pottery, blunt tools and clothing. However, surviving evidence of written records go back only about 3000 BCE. That is around 5000 years ago and that too only in some areas of the world. Literacy is commonly interpreted as having the capacity to read, write and use numeracy in at least one method of writing and understanding reflected by mainstream dictionary and handbook definitions. Different countries do have different definitions, but that is the gist of it. Literacy emerged with the development of numeracy and computational devices as early as 8000 BCE. Script developed independently at least five times in human history in the early civilizational periods. Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Indus Valley, lowland Macroamerica, and China. The earliest forms of written communication originated in Sumer, located in southern Mesopotamia around 3500 to 3000 BCE. During this era, literacy was a largely functional matter propelled by the need to manage the new quantities of information and the new types of governance created by trade and large-scale production. Let's now look at five ancient civilizations and how writing evolved in those civilizations. Starting with Egypt. Fully formed hieroglyphics were in use at Abdos as early as 3400 BC. The oldest known character was developed in central Egypt around 2000 BC from a hieroglyphic prototype. One hieroglyphic script was used on stone monuments, other cursive scripts were used for writing in ink or papyrus. A flexible paper-like material made from stems of reeds that grow in marshes and beds beside rivers, such as the River Nile. Next, let's look at the Phoenician civilization. The Phoenician script method was modified from the Proto-Canite script in around the 11th century BCE. That acquired approaches of the Egyptian hieroglyphics. This script was adapted by the Greeks. A variant of the early Greek alphabet gave rise to the Equestrian alphabet and then ultimately to the Latin alphabet. The Phoenician system was also adapted into the Aramic script from which the Hebrew script and that also of the Arabic script is descended from. Over in ancient China, 
The early oracle bone script has lasted on tens of thousands of oracle bones dating from around 1400 to 1200 BC in the Shang Dynasty. Out of more than 2,500 written characters in use in China in about 1200 BC, as many as 1,400 characters are identifiable as the source of later standard Chinese characters. Over to the Mayas, the earliest inscription, which were identifiably Mayan, dated to the 3rd century BC, and writing was in continuous use until shortly after the arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century. In India, the Indus Valley or Harappan script is ancient written script from about 3500 BCE, but unlike its counterparts in Iraq and Egypt, they for the most part have not been translated for us to read and understand today. Let's look at education before 1 BCE, and we can start with Iraq. In the region we know today in 2021 as Iraq, an early cuneiform script that took many years to master was developed. Only a limited number of individuals were hired as scribes to be trained in its reading and writing. Only royal offspring and sons of rich professionals, such as scribes, physicians and temple administrators, were schooled. Most boys would be taught their father's trade or appointed to learn a trade. Girls stayed at home with their mothers to learn housekeeping and cooking and to look after the children. Later, when a syllabus script became more widespread, more of the Mesopotamian population became literate. Later still, in Babylonian times, there were libraries in most towns and temples. There arose a whole social class of scribes, mostly employed in agriculture, but some as personal secretaries or lawyers. Women and men learned to read and write, and for the Semitic Babylonians, this involved knowledge of the, by now, extinct Sumerian language, and a complicated and extensive syllabus, vocabularies, grammars, and interlinear translations were compiled for the use of students, as well as commentaries on the older texts, explanations of obscure words and phrases. The Epic of Gilgamesh, an epic poem from ancient Mesopotamia, is among the earliest known works of literacy fiction. The earliest Sumerian versions of the epic date from as early as the third dynasty of Ur, 2150 to 2000 BCE. If you want to learn more about these stories, check out the excellent Older Stories podcast. Ashurbanipal, a king, 685 to about 627 BCE, of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, was proud of his scribal education. His youthful scholarly pursuits included oil deviation, mathematics, reading and writing, as well as the usual horsemanship, hunting, charity, soldiers' craftsmanships, and royal decorum. During his reign, he collected cuneiform texts from all over. Even for him, ancient Mesopotamia was ancient Mesopotamia, and especially ancient Babylonia. In the library in Nevers, the first systematically organized library in the ancient Middle East, which still survives today, was built by him. Moving on to ancient Egypt. In ancient Egypt, literacy was concentrated among an educated elite of scribes. Only people from certain backgrounds were allowed to train to become scribes in the service of the temple, the pharaohs and military authorities. 
the hieroglyphic system was always difficult to learn, but in later centuries was purposely made even more so, as this preserved the scribe's status. The rate of literacy in Pharaoh Egypt during most periods of the 3rd to 1st millennium BCE has been estimated at not more than 1% or between 1.5% to 1% of the population. In ancient Israel, the Torah, i.e. the fundamental religious text, includes commands to read, learn, teach and write the Torah, thus requiring literacy and study. In 64 AD, the high priest caused schools to be opened. Emphasis was placed on developing good memory skills in addition to comprehension and oral repetition. Although girls were not provided with formal education, they were required to know a large part of the subject areas to prepare them to maintain the homes after marriage and to educate the children before the age of seven. Moving on to ancient India, there are really two types of education systems. One was the Vedic system and two was the Buddhist system. We're going to start with the Vedic system. Sanskrit was the language used to impart Vedic education system. Pali was the language used in the Buddhist education system. In the Vedic system, a child started his education at the age of five, where in the Buddhist system, the child started his education at the age of eight. The main aim of education in ancient India was to develop a person's character, master the art of self-control, bring about social awareness, and to conserve and take forward ancient culture. In the Vedic system of study, the students were taught the four Vedas, the Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, the Yujur Veda, the Artha Veda. In ancient India, education was imparted and passed on orally rather than in written form. Education was a process that involved three steps. First was hearing, which is the acquisition of knowledge by listening to the Shrutis. The second is reflection, wherein the students think, analyze and make inferences. Third is in which the student applies the knowledge in real life. During the Vedic period, from about 1500 BCE to 600 BCE, most education was based on the Veda, or chanted by priests of a pre-Hindu tradition, and later Hindu texts and scriptures. The main aim of education according to the Vedas is liberation. Vedic education included things like proper pronunciation and recitation of the Vedas, rules, grammar, composition, verification, understanding of the secrets of nature, reasoning, including logic, the sciences, and the skills for an occupation. Some medical knowledge also existed and was taught. There is mention in the Vedas of herbal medicines for various conditions or diseases, including fever, cough, baldness, snake bites, and other things. It is believed that education at first was generally freely available in Vedic society. However, over time, it became more rigid and restricted as the social systems dictated who was receiving the education. Over time, those receiving the education were of the Brahmin priestly class. They were the most privileged of the castes. Educating women was of some importance in ancient India. Women were trained in dance, music and housekeeping. The Sardesha's class of women got educated till they were married. The Brahmin class of women never got married 
and educated themselves for their entire life. Parts of the Vedas that included poems and religious songs required for rituals were taught to women. Some noteworthy women scholars of ancient India included Ghosh, Gagari, Indrani and so on. The oldest of the Upanishads, another part of ancient Hindu scriptures, dates from around 500 BCE. The Upanishads are considered as wisdom teachings as they explore the deeper and actual meaning of sacrifice. These texts encourage an exploratory learning process where teachers and students were co-travelers in search for truth. The teaching methods used reasoning and questioning. Nothing was labeled as a final answer. The Gurukula system of education supported traditional Hindu residential schools of learning, typically at the teacher's house or a monastery. In this system, the teacher or the guru and the student were considered to be equal. The teacher imparted knowledge on religion, scriptures, philosophy, literature, warfare, statecraft, medicine, astrology and history. The corpus of Sanskrit literature encompasses a rich tradition of poetry and dharma, as well as technical, scientific, philosophical and generally Hindu religious texts. Although many central texts of Buddhism and Jainism have also been comprised in Sanskrit. Two epic poems form part of ancient Indian education. The Mahabharat, part of which may date back to about the 8th century BC, discusses human goals, i.e. purpose, pleasure, duty and liberation, attempting to explain the relationship of the individual to society and the world, the nature of self and the workings of karma. The other epic poem, Ramayana, is shorter, although it has 24,000 verses. It is thought to have been compiled between 400 BC and 200 AD. The epic explores themes of human existence and the concept of dharma, i.e. doing one's duty. Moving on to the Indian Buddhist education system. In the Buddhist system, there are three main segments, the Vinaya, the Sutta and the Adhimama. In the Vinaya, it is a Buddhist canon that contains a set of rules and regulations that govern the Buddhist community residing in the monastery. The Sutta is divided into five collections. It contains Buddhist teachings recorded mainly from his sermons. And the last one, the Abhamama, it contains summary analysis of Buddhist teachings. An early center of learning in ancient India, dating back to the 5th century BCE, was Talaxia, which taught the three Vedas and the 18 accomplishments. It was an important Vedic and Buddhist center of learning from the 6th century BCE to the 5th century CE. Another important center of learning from the 5th century CE was Nalanda. In the kingdom of Magda, Nalanda was a well-known Buddhist monastery and was the world's first university. Scholars and students from Tibet, China, Korea and Central Asia travelled to Nalanda in pursuit of education. Moving on to ancient China, the rulers of Yao and Shan in the 24th to 23rd century BCE established the first schools. The first education system was created by Xia dynasty, 2076 to 1600 BC. During the Xia dynasty, government built schools to educate aristocrats about rituals, literature and other important Chinese traditions were established. During the Shang dynasty, about 1600 BC to about 1046 BC, normal people, i.e. farmers, workers, etc., were accepted to 
have education. So you had aristocrats' children getting studied in government schools and normal people studied in private schools. Government schools were always built in cities and private schools were built in rural areas. Government schools paid attention on educating students about rituals, literature, politics, music, arts and archery. Private schools educated students to do farm work and handiwork. During the Zhao dynasty, which is around 1045 to 256 BC, there were five national schools in the capital city, Pyong. Schools mainly taught in the six arts, rites, music, archery, charioteering, calligraphy and mathematics. According to the books of, Book of Rites, at age 12, boys learned arts related to ritual, things like music and dance, and when older, archery and chariot driving. Girls also learned ritual, correct, etiquette, silk production and weaving. It was during the Zhu dynasty that the origins of native Chinese philosophy also developed. Confucius, around 551 to 479 BCE, the founder of Confucianism, was a Chinese philosopher who made a great impact on later generations of Chinese and on the curriculum of the Chinese educational system for much of the following 2,000 years. Later, during the Qin dynasty of about 246 to 207 BC, a hierarchy of officials was set up to provide central control over the outlying areas of the empire. To enter this hierarchy, both literacy and knowledge of increasing body of philosophy was required. The content of the educational process was designed not to endanger functionality, specific skills, but rather to produce morally enlightened and cultivated generalists. During the Han Dynasty, 206-221 CE, boys were taught ready at the age of seven to start learning basic skills in writing, writing reading, and calculation. In 124 BC, the emperor established an imperial academy, the curriculum of which was the five classics of Confucius. By the end of the Han Dynasty, around 220 CE, the academy enrolled more than 30,000 students, boys between the ages of 14 and 17 years. However, education through this period was a luxury. The nine-rank system was a civil service nomination system during the Three Kingdoms era and the northern and southern dynasties in China. Theoretically, local government authorities were given the task of selecting talented candidates, then categorizing them into nine grades depending on their abilities. In practice, however, only the rich and powerful would be selected. The nine-rank system was eventually superseded by the imperial examination system for the civil service in the Sui dynasty, which was around 581 to 618 AD. Let's look at Greece and Rome. In the city-states of ancient Greece, most education was private, perhaps except in Sparta. For example, in Athens, during the 4th and 5th centuries BC, aside from two years of military training, the state played little part in schooling. Anyone could open a school and decide on the curriculum. Parents could choose a school offering the subjects they wanted their children to learn at a monthly fee that they could afford. Most parents, even the poor, sent their sons to schools for at least a few years and if they could afford it, from around the age of 7 until 14, learning gymnastics, other sports, music, including poetry, drama, history and literacy. Girls rarely received formal education. The younger students learnt the alphabet by song and later by copying the shapes of letters with a syllabus on a waxed wooden tablet. 
After some schooling, the sons of poor or middle-class families often learned a trade by apprenticeship, whether with their father or another tradesman. By around 350 BCE, it was common for children at schools in Athens to also study various arts such as drawing, painting and sculpture. Some of Athens' greatest schools of higher education included the Lyceum, the so-called school founded by Aristotle, and the Platonic Academy founded by Plato. The education system of the wealthy ancient Greeks is also called the Padilla. In the subsequent Roman Empire, Greek was the primary language of science. Advanced scientific research and teaching were mainly carried on in the Hellenic side of the Roman Empire, i.e. in Greek. The first schools in ancient Rome arose by the middle of the 4th century BC. These schools were concerned with the basic socialization and rudimentary education of young Roman children. The literacy rate in the 3rd century BCE has been estimated as around 1% to 2% only. At the height of the Roman Republic and the later Roman Empire, the Roman educational system gradually found its final form. Formal schools were established which served to pay students, very little in the way of free public education as we know it, by the way. Normally both boys and girls were educated, though not necessarily together. In a system much like the one that predominates in the modern world, the Roman education system that developed arranged schools in tiers. A Roman student would progress through schools just as a student today might do so. Going from elementary school to middle school and then to high school and finally college. Progression depended more on ability than age, with great emphasis being placed on a student's inborn gift for learning and a more tacit emphasis on a student's ability to afford higher level education. Only the Roman elite would be expected to complete a formal education. A tradesman or farmer would expect to pick up most of his vocational skills on the job. Higher education in Rome was more of a status symbol than a practical concern. Let's move on now to early Christian education. After the Romans adopted Christianity, Christian centers of learning popped up in in multiple places across the empire. Theological learning became the primary learning format. During the early Middle Ages, the monasteries of the Roman Catholic Church were the centers of education and literacy. Prior to their formal establishment, many medieval universities were run for hundreds of years as Christian monastic schools, in which monks taught classes and later as cathedral schools. Evidence of these immediate forerunners of the later university system at many places dates back to the early 6th century. The first medieval institutions, generally considered to be universities, were established in Italy, France and England in the late 11th and 12th centuries AD for the study of things like the arts, law, medicine and theology. These universities evolved from much older Christian cathedral schools and monastic schools and it is difficult to define the date on which they became true universities. Ireland became known as the Island of Saints and Scholars. Monasteries were built all over Ireland, and these became centres of great learning. Northumbria was famed as a centre for religious learning and arts. Initially, the kingdom was evangelised by monks from the Celtic church, which led to the flowering of monastic life, and Northumbria played an important role in the formation of insular art, a unique style combining Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Byzantine and other elements. 
After the Synod of Whitby in 664 AD, the Roman Church practices officially replaced the Celtic ones, but the influence of the Anglo-Celtic style continued, the most famous examples being from the Lindisfarne Gospels. During the 6th and 7th centuries AD, the academy at Gundisbord, originally the intellectual centre of the Sassanid Empire and subsequently a Muslim centre of learning, offered training in medicine, philosophy, theology and science. The faculty were versed not only in the Zoroastrian and Persian traditions, but in Greek and Indian learning as well. The University of Al-Qarawin, located in the town of Fez in Morocco, is the oldest existing continually operating university and the first degree-awarding educational institution in the world, according to UNESCO and Guinness Book of World Records, and is sometimes referred to the oldest surviving continuously used university. The House of Wisdom in Baghdad was a library, an educational center from the 9th to the 13th centuries AD. Works on astrology, mathematics, agriculture, medicine and philosophy were translated, drawing on Persian, Indian and Greek texts. The scholars accumulated a great collection of knowledge in the world and built on it through their own discoveries. The house was an unrivaled centre for the study of humanities and for sciences, including maths, astronomy, medicine, chemistry, zoology and geography. Baghdad was known as the world's richest city and centre for intellectual development of the time and had a population over a million, the largest of its time. Much later in the 9th century, medical schools were formed in the medieval Islamic world, where medical diplomas were issued to students of Islamic medicine who were qualified to be a practising doctor of medicine. So what have we learned, aside from the oldest university being in northern India, the oldest continuously used university being in Morocco, and the original founding universities that are so popular today in Europe being found on churches and medieval societies. Well, we discovered that education and training were both for men and women, but mostly men. We figured out that script, literacy and education go hand in hand. As a product, it evolved at different times in different locations in history. We understood that most people did not get an education and remained illiterate all their lives. We also discovered that in many places, religion drove education. The irony of the aforementioned story is that this system continued pretty much undaunted to the 1980s. For the rich countries and even now in poorer countries, literacy levels remain low. The lesson in this class is that literacy and education equal prestige, wealth and power. It is over the centuries that we place so much emphasis on education because it gives us the ability to look down on the uneducated. But as I talk about this in January 2021, vast quantities of people are actually literate and educated. We now have more literacy than we ever did before in terms of numbers of people. But as a percentage, it seems to have been declining over some period of time because the population has been going up while the literacy levels have remained lowish. Let's go back to what literacy is in the modern context. Literacy is commonly interpreted as having the capacity to read, write and use numeracy in at least one method of writing, an understanding reflected by mainstream dictionaries and handbook definitions. Different countries do have different definitions, but that generally is the gist of it. Literacy data published by UNESCO 
displays that since 1950, the adult literacy rate at the world level has increased by 5 percentage points every decade on average, from 55.7% in 1950 to 86.2% in 2015. However, for four decades, the population growth was so rapid that the number of illiterate adults kept increasing, rising from 700 million in 1950 to 878 million in 1990. Since then, the number has fallen markedly to 745 million in 2015, although it remains higher than in 1950, despite decades of universal education policies, literacy, interventions and the spread of print material and information and communication technologies. North America, Europe, West Asia and Central Asia have achieved almost full adult literacy, i.e. individuals at or over the age of 15, for both men and women. Most countries in East Asia and the Pacific, as well as Latin America and the Caribbean, are actually above 90% literacy rate for adults. Illiteracy persists to a greater extent in other regions. In 2013, UNESCO Institute for Statistics, i.e. the UIS, data indicates that adult literacy rates of only 67% in South Asia and North Africa and 59% in Sub-Saharan Africa. According to 2015 UIS data collected by UNESCO, about two-thirds of, uh, say, 63% of the world's illiterate adults are women. This disparity was even starker in previous decades. From 1970 to 2000, the global gender gap in literacy would decrease by roughly 50%. In recent years, however, this progress has stagnated, with the remaining gender gap holding constant over the previous two decades. Female illiteracy coexists with other aspects of gender inequality. Social barriers prevent expanding literacy skills among women and girls. Making literacy classes available can be ineffective when it conflicts with the use of valuable limited time of women and girls. School-age girls in many contexts face stronger expectations than their male counterparts to perform household work and care after younger siblings. So why are literacy rates such an important measure? Well, the Sustainable Development Goals adopted by the UN in 2015, the UNESCO Institute for Lifelong Learning, has declared the central role of literacy in responding to sustainable development challenges such as health, social equality, economic empowerment and environmental sustainability. I want to look at two in particular, the socio-economic impact and the health and hygiene benefits of education. Starting with socioeconomic impact, literate people can be more easily trained than illiterate people and generally have a higher socioeconomic status. Thus, they enjoy better health and employment prospects. Literate, literate people can also drive commercial benefits, giving rise to increased wealth generation. Then there are health and hygiene benefits. Illiteracy generally corresponds with less knowledge about modern hygiene and nutritional practices and an unawareness of which can exacerbate a wide, wide range of health issues. Within developing countries in particular, literacy rates also have implications for child mortality. In these contexts, children of literate mothers are 50% more likely to live past the age of 5 than ch children of illiterate mothers. 
public health research has thus increasingly concerned itself with the potential for literacy skills to allow women to more successfully access healthcare systems and thereby facilitate gains in child health. Now let's move on to look at the actual process of education. The International Standard Classification of Education was created by UNESCO as a statistical base to compare education systems. In 1997 AD, it defined seven levels of education and 25 fields. Though the fields were later separated out to form different projects, the current version has nine rather than seven levels created by dividing the tertiary pre-doctorate level into three levels. It also extended to the lowest levels to cover a new subcategory of early childhood educational development programs which target children below the age of three. So let's look at early childhood. Education designed to support early development in preparation for participation in school and society is what early childhood education is all about. The programs are designed for children below the age of three. The children now readily would interact with their peers and their educator. These are also known as nursery schools and as kindergarten, except in the US where the term kindergarten actually refers to the earlier levels of primary education. So let's look at primary education or elementary education. This education consists of the first four to seven years of formal structured education. In general, primary education consists of six to eight years of schooling starting at the age of five to seven, although this varies between and sometimes within countries. Globally, in 2008, around 89% of children aged six to 12 were enrolled in primary education and this proportion was rising. Under the Education for All programs developed by UNESCO, most countries have committed to achieving universal enrollment in primary education by the year 2015, although by the year 2021, that still isn't a fact. And in many countries, it is actually compulsory. Some education systems have separate middle schools with a transition to the final stage of secondary education taking place at around the age of 15. In India, for example, compulsory education spans over 12 years, with 8 years of elementary education, 5 years of primary schooling, and 3 years of upper primary schooling. Looking at secondary education, in most contemporary educational systems of the world, Secondary education compromises of formal education that occurs during adolescence. In the US, Canada and Australia, primary and secondary education together are sometimes referred to as K-12 to education. And in New Zealand, year 1-3 to three is used. The purpose of secondary education can be to give common knowledge to prepare for higher education or to train you directly in a profession. Now looking at higher education... Higher education, also called tertiary or third state education, is a non-compulsory education levels that follows the completion of technically compulsory school, such as the high school or secondary school. Tertiary education is normally taken to include undergraduate and postgraduate education, as well as vocational education and training. Colleges and universities mainly provide tertiary education. Collectively, these are sometimes known as tertiary institutions, Individuals who complete this education generally receive certificates, diplomas, or academic degrees. Beyond the higher education system, we have something called vocational system. A vocational education system 
is a form of education focused on direct and practical training for a specific trade or craft. Vocational education may come in the form of an apprenticeship or internship, as well as institutions teaching courses such as carpentry, agriculture, engineering, medicine, architecture, and the arts. We also have special education. This is an education focused on individualized instruction and functional skills. In its early years, special education was only provided to people with severe physical disabilities. But more recently, it has been open to anyone who has experienced difficulty, including learning difficulties. To close out, I want to talk about education and common sense. If we look at the elitist nature of the educational and literacy system, it is embedded in human psychology. The need to go up as you can aim higher, and it gives you the tacit ability to look down occasionally. Education isn't always learning. It isn't always training. It is more of a set of sometimes practical instructions that you may or may not apply in your life. Most education is finite. All learning and training is infinite. Looking down on illiterate or less educated people by educated people is a sign of poor judgment. We humans need to survive and for that we need to constantly learn and retrain. We also need a ton of common sense. That's why Richard Branson with less education than someone like me became rich and started a company. Not to underestimate instructional learning, without that you would not trust doctors, nurses, pilots or anyone claiming to be a scientist. You have to understand that education also limits us and teaches us inherent biases. If you go back in this podcast and re-listen to the various histories and evolution of education, you soon realize its limits and more so its biases, be it religious or regional or gender or racial. Today, the pursuit of education and the surrounding money-making machines in some countries can limit us intellectually. Students are at risk of being a product unless we engage in what the ancients knew, that is learning and training beyond education. For a moment, think about people from the Iron Age and Bronze Age. Can anyone listening to this podcast actually go and build tools from iron or bronze? Could you make your own iron? Can anyone rear livestock for food or dairy? or even know how to forage for sweet berries, survive a violent attack, survive without basic medication or clean water. Could you do it? The singular most consequential exercise from education should be that you need to know your inherent biases, acknowledge others' biases, know what you don't know, and continuously learn. Remember, education was designed to be finite, to create elites. Learning, however, is forever. New technology and e-learning have major benefits for learning, but has the potential to transform education as well. However, as time tells us, all instructional learning is inherent with bias. So, never stop learning for yourself. Einstein said, education is what remains after one has forgotten what one has learned in school. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Sinner podcast. Please find me on Twitter at the Sinner Pod. Thank you. <laughs>